Good morning. Uh, well, we've got some autumnal weather for autumn term just about to kick off. Uh, but I thought it would be a good idea for us to talk about something that is at the heart of what it means to be church as we kick off our uh, autumn term, and that is discipleship. But what does it really mean to be a disciple? Or what does discipleship actually mean? I think for a lot of people in the church, uh, it's easy for us to make a distinction between being a disciple of Jesus and discipleship. I think the way we often do that is we think, okay, when someone sticks up their hand and says, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus now, that makes them a disciple. And then uh, what happens is they get mature and wise, and then they start to make disciples. And actually, that isn't accurate, really, as to what discipleship really is in the Bible. And so we want to just look at that again today and uh, try and understand what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and to make disciples. So before the church was born, Jesus called together a group of disciples, and then he commissioned that group of disciples to make more disciples. And uh, as we look closely, there is a much wider and more thrilling definition of what discipleship actually is when we do go to the Bible. Uh, So we're going to look at Luke 5, 1 to 11 today, and we're going to make three observations from there about what it means uh, to be a disciple of Jesus, and then we'll make two other observations about what it means to be a disciple maker, okay? And so with each observation, what we'll try and do is we'll try and then ground that in reality. What does it look like for us to actually live these things out every single day? So turn with me to Luke 5. Verses 1 to 11. If you do have one of these Bibles, uh, uh, the page number is 606. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, uh, to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that uh, we can trust it. Thank you, Lord, that uh, in our everyday life, you give us practical advice through the glories of your word. Thank you, God, that in the big 
that picture of who you are that you make life make sense. And so, Lord, I pray that you would come and speak to us now about what, what is discipleship. Lord, we want to be your disciples. We want to be people who are uh, faithful what, to what it means to be a disciple. We want to be people who are faithful to your call to make disciples. So, Lord, help us now by your power, we pray, your Holy Spirit. Amen. First observation is this. Disciples have encountered the majesty of Jesus. Jesus is on his first preaching tour here, and he gets down to the shores uh, at Galilee, and he needs a place to preach. So he pushes out onto the boat, onto Simon Peter's boat, and he starts to preach. At the end of his teaching, he notices that the disciples are, are still looking, not the disciples at this point, sorry, the fishermen around him are looking glum because they've been out all night and they've caught nothing. Now, when you're an expert at something, when something's not going well, the worst thing that can happen to you is someone who is not an expert in this area comes along and says, oh, you just need to do this. Well, that's kind of what's going to happen here. Peter uh, doesn't respond uh, to Jesus and call him master because he thinks it's a great idea. He replies that way because it's a mark of respect within that society for a rabbi. So he does the right thing and he says, master. And then he does what the master asks him to do. Like saying, sir. But you can imagine, as he's doing it, out of breath, what does he know anyway? They must have got quite the shock. When those nets filled with fish, just because he put them out on the other side. And then the nets start to burst. And the boat begin to sink. It's going to be carnage. Peter, at this moment, realizes something. He realizes that this isn't an expert fisherman, but he is the Lord of the fish. He is God over nature. He realizes that this is no ordinary man, that this man is deserving of his worship. So he falls face down. No longer does he just call him master. He calls him Lord. He recognizes that he has power over nature. And he demands to be worshipped. Now, you might think Peter's getting carried away here. You might think I'm getting carried away here. Hold on. Couldn't it just be that a shoal of fish happened to come along at that moment in the morning and suddenly the nets were filled? Well, this same Jesus calms storms. He then heals diseases. He makes the blind see. He raises people from the dead. He himself rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven before the disciples' very eyes. And then, probably, or perhaps most astonishingly of all, he then pours out the power of the Holy Spirit upon those fishermen, those normal ordinary, everyday people, and he changes the world. Jesus is Lord, 
This is the Jesus who was described in Hebrews as heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Peter's next words are, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No longer does he say, master, which was that polite term, Lord. During a recent preaching series, we heard uh, about Isaiah's uh, moment in the throne room of God. And he doesn't just fall face down before God, but he also realizes something in that moment before the wonder and the splendor and the glory of God, he realizes that he is not any of those things. He is not holy. He is not mighty. He is not the king of kings. In fact, he is puny and sinful. And that is what is happening to Peter here. He is recognizing his puniness. One commentator says this, it is the master whose orders must be obeyed but it is the Lord whose holiness causes moral agony to the sinner. When we consider the true Jesus, we cannot come before him in pretense. When we come before him, we come to him with this kind of no hiding place humiliation. We bow before his majesty and we call him Lord. Disciples of Jesus have encountered his majesty. So what does everyday majesty look like? What does that really look like for us every day? How do we continue to encounter the majesty of God? I think the first thing we need to do is that we need to read the Bible honestly. When I was uh, first uh, a Christian, for the first maybe two years, I read a Bible that someone had given me and it had a topical index in it. Now, it was useful for lots of things, but really what it did for me was it meant that I would feel a certain way on a certain day, and I would go to this topical index, I'd look up uh, whatever I was feeling, and then I would go to a verse, and then it would be kind of this therapeutic thing going on for me. And, and that kind of, that's kind of how I treated the Bible. But what I didn't realize is that actually I was being robbed of what it means to come before the glory and the majesty of God and tremble before him and work things out that I'm not comfortable with. And when we do that, we have a bigger picture uh, of God and it stops being so inward focused and it, it stops being more outward focused to him. And, and actually when we do that, that is when true transformation takes place in our hearts. We start to understand who we are, and we start to understand who God is, and so we can live life with much more grace. And when we do that, we are free. I, um, I, I in that moment, uh, when I first recognized that God was majestic, realized that I'd been treating him as not God, but as someone who is just there as a kind of helper. We need to avoid that at all costs. The other thing we can do is we can pray, hallowed be thy name prayers. 
your king, uh, how does the, the Lord's Prayer start? It says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, the one part of scripture that I know on the pages you and I can't help but to quote the pages is, Hallowed be thy name. We need to pray those prayers every single day. Remind ourselves of who God is. And then, as we do, we recognize who we really are. Our second observation is this. Disciples have received the mercy of Jesus. Yes, we should pursue the majesty of God in all our life. But Jesus' response to trembling people is simple. Do not be afraid. Jesus didn't crush him. He didn't say, get away from me, sinner. He said, do not be afraid. The gentleness of the universe's majestic king towards people who come to him in humility is remarkable. We come humbly knowing we are puny and that we have nothing to offer and we should be judged by him as our holy judge. Yet his response is, do not be afraid. It's mercy. Over the past couple of weeks, I've been helping out at Poole Parkland uh, doing some schooling. One of the things I love about Poole Parkland is the culture of encouragement. So people are running past and it felt a bit awkward for me, especially as a Scotsman. And you kind of have to do this, well done, well done, brilliant, good work, yeah, good running. And, and actually, the more I got into it, the more I loved it. Because people responded well, there's this real kind of sense of community and encouragement that's going on all the time. Anyway, last week, I was getting quite into it, and I shouted out to this guy, well done, you're doing brilliant. And he shouted back and said, no, I'm not, I'm doing rubbish. <laughs> I thought, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Sometimes we will say things like that, won't we? And, and actually, we don't really know anything about it. Because for him, he was running well behind pace that day. I had no idea what pace he was trying to run at. Now, sometimes what happens in our lives is we have people that, that come up to us and say, oh, you're doing great, you're doing brilliant, pat on the back, don't worry, you're just wonderful the way you are. But actually, that's not always very helpful. The only person who could have in that moment said to Peter, do not be afraid, and for it to really mean something, was the holy king of the universe. Because he is the righteous judge over every single one of us. And he also is the one who in three years' time would go to the cross, would substitute himself there for Peter and for us, and he would receive the wrath of God that we deserve so that Peter and you and I could be free and we could hear the words, do not be afraid. But if there are people in your life who are saying things like, don't worry, you're doing really well, but you know actually that you're not because you've got one area of your life in which you're trying to follow Jesus, but then you've got another area of your life where actually you're actively still living in some kind of sin. Then beware, because it's not true. You're not doing well. You need to abandon yourself to Jesus. You need to fall before his feet like Peter did and say, Lord, be Lord over every part of my life. Have mercy on me. We need Jesus 
not some kind of opposite affirmation. Jesus is your answer. Disciples find mercy at the feet of Jesus. So what does that look like? What does it look like to receive mercy every single day? One of the things we can do is we can take communion regularly. Because when we go to communion, we should examine ourselves before God as we remember what he has done to give us mercy. Take communion. I think another thing we can do is we, we can have people that we're accountable with. So that means people who can be truly honest with, who love Jesus as well, who have got your best interests at heart, who will pray with you. And when you, when you talk about sin together that's going on in your life, you can pray over each other and ask God for mercy. And the other thing we can do is we can be merciful as God is merciful for us. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for I will show them mercy. The more we practice mercy, the more we will receive mercy. So let's say you're at home one day and your spouse uh, comes in and you ask them, have you done that thing that I promised you would do? They say, oh no, I've not done that. You've got a choice tonight. You can get grumpy, punish them with your grumpiness, show them how bad they've been, Make them feel even more guilty until they've done it. Or you can be merciful. Now, when you're merciful, what happens is not only do you free them from guilt and condemnation from you, but you also free yourself. Because suddenly, you're not having to to feel judgmental over them in that moment. Now, they've done wrong. Don't get me wrong. They've done wrong. But... You need to give them freedom and mercy in the same way that God has done that for you. If you do that, you will receive more mercy. The third observation of a disciple is this. Disciples have abandoned their old lives to follow Jesus. (laughs) So this is Annabelle. Annabelle's six months old now. And uh, she just wants to do everything we do. So she's kind of at that cute age where she wants to eat when we eat. She wants to drink when we drink. And she even wants to brush her teeth, but she doesn't have yet when we brush her teeth. So this was last Sunday morning, and uh, Lindsay was brushing her teeth, and Annabelle had to grab her own brush to brush her teeth. And actually, that is what is at the heart of discipleship. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to imitate what Jesus does. Uh, Paul, um, he said that we should imitate uh, imitate him Let's start again. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what he said. So we should be looking to imitate Jesus. And when we see Jesus-like characteristics in other people, let's look to imitate them as well. For those of us who have been around church long enough, this story can kind of wash over us a little bit. Uh, But let's just read exactly what Luke says about Peter uh, at the end of this passage and the, the others who follow after Jesus. They left everything and followed Jesus. Everything. This short encounter with the majesty and the mercy of Jesus was enough for them to abandon everything and follow after after Jesus. Leave behind your possessions, leave behind your comfort, leave behind your selfish desires, leave behind your embarrassment, leave behind your reputation. Leave behind all of it for the sake of Jesus. 
and later in Luke, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take, him, uh, take up his cross daily and follow me. Hang on. Take up an instrument of death, an instrument of torture, and follow me. Uh, and do that every day. Wow. Discipleship is total abandonment to Jesus. I recently heard the true story of a Christian in Cuba. And uh, he was called up before a tribunal because he'd been telling people about Jesus. Um, and so he goes to the tribunal and there's these uh, guys before him who are going to judge him for what he's done for proselytizing. And so he goes in, but he's not uh, empty-handed. He's carrying in a massive rock, and he sort of waddles in with his rock, goes all the way to the table, and dumps it on the table. And he says, just before we start, I want you to know, you can shut me up, put me in prison, you can even kill me, and you can do the same thing with everyone in Cuba, but I need you to know that the rocks will cry out, even if you do. This guy had understood that Jesus is the Lord of nature, that Jesus is the Lord of all things, and he's worth abandoning ourselves to. He went in and abandoned himself before Jesus. And you know, they let him off because they thought he was mad. We, we uh, are called to abandon ourselves to Jesus. How do we do that every day? Well, I think the first thing we can do is be disciplined to read the Word of God. Right from the beginning, Jesus was doing this, wasn't he? We see him at 12 years old, and uh, where is he? Well, he's in the temple, spending time in his father's house, and he's debating using the scriptures. The next time we see him, he is uh, out in the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit, and then tested by Satan. And how, what, how does he uh, rebut all of his advantage, uh, Satan's advantages? With Scripture. He was armed. He was ready. He was, uh, he'd memorized it. He'd meditated on it. He knew Scripture inside out, and he was ready. We need to do the same. Do whatever you have to do to arrange your days in such a way that you spend time with Scripture. Whatever that looks like. Now, lots of us are busy. Some people busier than others. Some people will feel like they are just at breaking point. They are so busy. But I promise you, even if you are at breaking point, it is worth sacrificing what you think needs done before spending time with God to go and spend time with Scripture. Because all those other things will be put into perspective when you do. It's so important if we are going to lay ourselves down to follow Jesus, we need to be spending time with him. Do whatever you have to do. Sacrifice that TV late at night when you're really tired. Sacrifice that extra half hour in work so that you're the bee's knees at work. Trust God, honor him, and he'll go with you. So that's three observations about being a disciple. But the Bible makes it clear that disciples, by implication, 
our disciple maker. So I've said that we've then got two observations about being a disciple maker. Really, it's five observations about being a disciple, but let's just do uh, two on the disciple making now, okay? So disciple makers go fishing. Jesus says to uh, these fishermen, I will make you fishermen of men. And then three years later, after he's raised from the dead, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We often think of discipleship as a Christian endeavor. So it's a mature Christian hanging out with a not so mature Christian and they're the kind of discipler and they're being discipled. But that's not what the Bible portrays. Actually, at the heart of discipleship is bringing people to faith, is guiding people to faith. And, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, their, their hearts are changed as we see at the revelation of who Jesus is through you. That, that's at the heart of what it is to be a disciple. The last time I was in Glasgow, a friend of mine called me up and he said, I've just got in my heart. While I've been praying for the church of this part of Glasgow, we should go and pray together and do that today. I had a, a free morning, so I thought, okay, a free morning, let's, let's go and do it. So we turn up, and it's 11 in the morning, so we're thinking, where do we go to find lots of people to tell about Jesus at 11 in the morning? So we go to the bookies, and we get into some good conversations there. goes okay. Um, one guy wasn't that happy with us, but I won't get into that. Um, but then we did go on, and we, we, uh, we found uh, this guy walking his dog in a hiking boot. And I noticed he had a limp. And so he tells us a bit about how he got that, and we sympathize with him. He's a psychological knee problem. Um, and then we start talking to him about who Jesus is, what we're doing, why we're there. And eventually he says, okay, I think I'm about 99% there, but I, I just have this 1% that's not quite there because I feel like if I... If I get to heaven and there's this elephant there with lots of arms and stuff, then, uh, you know, that's a possibility that I could have got it wrong. I, I didn't get into him about how that wouldn't happen because that's not how it works, even if that was true. Um, but we, we did then just kind of, at that point, just try and work out what, what is it that's stopping you? Um, and he said in that moment, I just don't know if he wants to engage with me now. I, I haven't seen evidence of that. I don't, I don't see that he is engaged. And so um, I said to him, look, how about we pray for your knee? He said, oh, yeah, brilliant. Okay, tell you what, if it's healed, that 1%'s gone. So um, honestly, I've prayed for a lot of people, and some of there's been one or two that have been healed, and most haven't, okay? That's the reality. I'm going to just be honest with you here. Uh, that's, that's where I'm at. But as we pray for him, there seems to be something happening. And anyway, after we, we prayed for him, said, how do you feel? He said, really good, brand new. So uh, I said, okay, well, why don't we have a little walk, see how it feels. And he starts running with his dog in tow. And he, and he runs down the road and says, oh, it's brilliant. It's totally healed. Now, I tell you that story, not because I want to tell you some dramatic story, but because I want us to see that on the other side of the boat, there are plenty of people who are ready to be fished. There are ready, pl plenty of people ready to be pulled up in the net. There are plenty of people, 
time for the gospel. Jesus has prepared people who are ready to receive him. And all we need to do is go. Now, I know, trust me, this is something that I battle with all the time. It's hard. Sometimes we feel like, oh, I just don't, I don't know if I can go. I just, I don't feel like, I just feel embarrassed. Like, oh, this is so hard. But when we do and we pray, God often sends up and saves people. There are lots of people on the other side of the boat and they need to be faithful and go and make disciples. So what does everyday fishing look like? Well, I think it's like what I did there. Get alongside evangelists and learn. Now, they don't need to have had hundreds of people every year come to faith around them. I'm not talking about Billy Graham here. I'm talking about people who maybe uh, are relatively successful at inviting friends and they come along and they come to things like Alpha and Life Explored and uh, many of them come to faith. Get alongside them, spend time with them, learn what they do and copy it. I think the second thing we can do is pray for opportunities and take steps of faith. There's a, a, a phrase that I love, uh, when I pray, coincidences happen, when I don't, they don't. But the reality is, when we pray, God answers. Pray that God would come and meet with your friends, with your colleagues, your neighbors, and give you opportunities to tell them about him. And then, we've got a Life Explored uh, course coming up. Invite them to things like that. Invite them to, to Life Explored. Matthew Ashton is, is leading that this time. Uh, get in touch with him, ask him about it. Should be on the website this week. Um, have a look at that and, and invite friends. The second observation about disciple makers is this. Disciple makers are community builders. Now, here you go. Here's a bunch of people that I believe are world-changing disciple makers. Okay? World changers. They don't look like much. I'll give you that. I don't want to offend anyone else in the picture, but we are fairly ordinary and probably not that spectacular looking. Would you agree? You can all nod your heads. That's fine. Um, the reality is that we need uh, to do ordinary things together, and it's in doing those ordinary things that we see extraordinary things happen by simply walking with people. Uh, yesterday, this was at uh, Rich and Vicky's house, uh, who are at Alder Road. Uh, they just moved house, and some people came along. Some people looked after the kids. Some people um, came through. Some people cleaned. Some people made lunch. <laughs> Praise the Lord for them. Uh, some people um, were uh, just catching up and, and talking. It was great. It was a real time of community. Now, we need to just be careful that we don't just assume authority when we are looking to influence other people to disciple them. It is moments like this that will build trust. Spend time with people. We can't just give ourselves the title, I'm a disciple, and go and disciple someone. You've got to get to know people. You've got to love them. You've got to spend time with them. As you do, you will see that opportunities come up to display the genuineness of your faith in real life. Programs are really valuable, but only if they facilitate authentic community where discipleship can be modeled and discussed. We need lots of ordinary moments like this if we want to change the world. 
In Acts 4, after Jesus had ascended and poured out the, uh, the Spirit of God on his first disciples, Luke records that the religious authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John and the other followers of Jesus, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. True disciples are ordinary people doing extraordinary things because they live everyday life with Jesus. In other words, follow Jesus, try and imitate him as you do in ordinary situations and you will see people around you change. Tim Chester, who has helped uh, lead a number of new church plants in and around Sheffield, says this, we have found in our context that most learning and training takes place not through program teaching or training courses, but in unplanned conversations, talking about life, talking about ministry, talking about faith. When I was a pastor in a Baptist church in Scotland, we did something that at the time seemed quite radical to us. Uh, we stopped calling ourselves ministers and we called ourselves pastors. Now, the reason we did that is because we felt like that there was this kind of unhealthy uh, view of what people did up front. So the people up front do the ministering and I am ministered to. That's kind of the approach that a lot of people had in the church. And if we're honest, we can sometimes slip into that a little bit as well. We need to be so careful not to think that we can't do the ministry. God has called you to make disciples. Are you following Jesus? Do you love Jesus? You're called to be a disciple maker. You're called to the ministry. You're called to do ministry. Jesus was a disciple maker with three groups of people. Uh, he had a wide group of followers. Uh, like, remember the story of the 72 where he sends them all out into the villages and uh, they go and, and uh, try and mimic what he's been doing. And then there's a, a smaller group. There's the, the group of 12. And he spends most of the time with them. They have a, a pretty close uh, relationship. Then he has an even closer relationship with the three. And so I think we need to be looking to do similar uh, kinds of uh, levels of community. We need to be regular, regular at our church sites on Sundays. We're about 72 on a Sunday, aren't we? As adults, around about that. Uh, only miss Sundays when you absolutely have to. It's so important for us to try and be together as much as we most possibly can. We need to be regular at attending life groups, like the 12. Uh, you can sign up for next week um, for the autumn term. We need to be regularly meeting with one or two or three others who we know that uh, we can be honest with, we can be totally vulnerable with, we can trust them, they pray for us, we pray for them, we receive mercy together as we come before God. These groups should be our relational basis for church family life. Then we need to let that spill out into our ordinary life because we're intentional about the time that we have with both Christians and non-Christians. So disciples make disciples together. We are team players for community builders. How do we practically do that? I think there's two things uh, that, that we need to do. So one is prioritize Sunday's life groups and accountability, like I've just said. And when you're planning to do normal things, do them with other people. Plan to invite others 
come along. We're going to do some baking. We're going to do something around the house. Kids need to eat and uh, look after while you do it. Get around each other, help each other, spend life together. We don't want to have desperate life where we pretend in one moment to be a certain way and then we don't let people see our real life. Authentic discipleship happens when our real lives are exposed and we, and we act out of mercy and grace and love of God and love of each other. So do you want to be one of these Jesus disciples? Do you want to see other disciples made for the kingdom of God advance and scale? Well, let's do it together. Falling face down before his majesty, receiving his mercy, abandoning ourselves to follow him, imitating him, and then look to make more disciples together. My prayer is that we would encounter the majesty and the mercy of our God in such a powerful way as we do this in real life in the person of Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come back up now. I think what would be helpful for us this morning is as we take communion and uh, and as we uh, look to worship God, to fall down at, at his majesty again and receive his mercy, is if you're feeling like you're in a place where you are kind of one foot in the world and one foot trying to follow Jesus. I just want to remind you that that is just not possible. If that's you, please do find someone this morning to pray with. Some of us will be down here, um, so do come over and pray with us there if you would like to. The other thing that I think would be really helpful is if you're someone who believes that you're not someone who is fit to do ministry, but you still call yourself a follower of Jesus. There's a disconnect there. And God this morning would want you to know that you are called to do the ministry. He's equipping you to do the ministry. He wants you to do the ministry. So if that's you, come and find someone to pray with. And then I challenge you, once you finish praying with them, ask them, can I pray for you for something? Start doing the ministry. Why don't we stand together? And the other thing we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. And when we take communion, it is an opportunity to make an assessment of ourselves. Where are we at? And then remember that Jesus has gone to the cross. He's shed his blood. His body was nailed to that cross for you. And mercy is yours. And Jesus says to you, do not be afraid. Come to my table. Do not be afraid. So as we worship, come in your own time. Receive communion. Thanks for prayer. And worship this awesome God we serve.